Hello, I'm Mark McCurgo and welcome to the Village in the City podcast, helping you build micro-local community where you live. Welcome to our sixth Village in the City podcast, and this time it's a recording of the day we welcomed Cormac Russell into the Village in the City studio. Cormac had published his book, Rekindling Democracy, a professional's guide to working in citizen space, and we start off by talking about that, and Cormac then develops his theme into uh, some great ideas with his energy and passion of working uh, in non-colonial ways and how he really put citizens at the heart of community developments. Uh, it's a great recording, uh, recorded in December 2020, uh, and I hope you'll enjoy listening to it today. Hello there, Cormac. Hi, Mark. How are you? Very well, thank you. Really excited to have you with us today. Really excited. Oh, so, it's, it's, a, it's a joy. So just to say a word of introduction um, before we get the conversation underway, Cormac is a real hero of the asset-based community development scene, worked all over the world. He's just written a very impactful book, I'll say just a year or two ago now, Rekindling Democracy, A Professional's Guide to Working in Citizen Space. And so one of the things I'd like to talk about, maybe it's a place to start, Cormac, today, is you wrote that book for professionals, but you're really advocating professionals get out of the way or something and, and focus instead on nurturing bottom-up community development as a priority. So, so let us into that. What's this, the balance for you with the professionals and the citizens and the community? Yeah, I think it's important to say I'm not saying professionals get out of the way. I'm saying professionals don't get in the way and create the conditions within which you can really support community to find their way. So that's a very different proposition, I think. And um, it takes a little time to frame that up and make sense of it because we work in colonial contexts within which the story goes that um, my good life is in the marketplace, that the teacher knows best, that the doctor heals me, that the lawyer sorts my problems out, and that the politician does my citizenship for me. And I think anybody who's paying any degree of attention to what's going on in the world might say, taint so. So I think there is a role for professionals, and um, like all good roles, it can uh, go either way. So we have to show up and pay attention. Uh, so the book is really, I think, an opportunity for professionals who want to pivot from providing services solely to precipitating citizenship and community building primarily with services as a supplementary piece by invitation. So there's a lot of nuance to that. These are easy words to say. Um, but to actually cultivate practices and to build institutional structures that don't eclipse people's power is an art form. Because any, any, any intelligent fool can build a big institution or provide statutory services. But it takes a, a, a bit of a radical to go the other way. Absolutely. So here at Village in the City, we're very keen to support bottom-up community building in all sorts of forms. And one of the things that struck me was that you use a, a Lego metaphor in your book. And you talk about how in the old days, we used to get a box of Lego and everyone decided what to make for themselves out of the, the basic bits. And then there was a kind of change where people started to get Lego sets, which were supposed to make something. 
and there was a big load of instructions and, in, and it kind of made the thing rather than were creative. And I, I think that's a very powerful metaphor about what might be the many, many, many right ways there might be, or useful ways there might be, to build communities. Maybe you'd like to say a bit about that. Well, just two thoughts on it, Mark, really. One is, is that um, it's only a momentary compliance. Right? So I have, I have five boys, and I've noticed, you know, be, between the ages of 26 and eight, and typically speaking, the 26-year-old and 23-year-old, I think, got away with the, uh, here's the worthy outcome that you must build. Um, the younger ones uh, are eight-year-old twins and 10-year-old. And they get the sets and they, they, you know, they yearn for them like most kids at this time of the year and hope Santa will bring them and so forth. And, and then they comply and they build according to the instruction manual. And that's done and sometimes it takes them a few days. And then they break it all apart and it all gets assembled into the mess that is, you know, the plastic of Lego. And then they start to create. So I suspect what happens is, is that there is a kind of a momentary compliance, but eventually people get quite bored of the command and control and the design and the worthy outcome and whatever. Um, and they start doing their own thing. So they start moving from let's see if we can comply with what people had in mind for us and they start to create. So in a sense, I think what, it's the marketplace, isn't it? The marketplace says, come be you know, a consumer, follow the instructions, do it this way. And, and that's a, an alluring invitation for a few days, but people tire of it because it's not the stuff that builds a satisfying life. So this, this basic idea, um, I to remember the American philosopher who said this, you, you can never have enough of what you don't really want. So I think what people really want is not to problem solve. And, th and that's what the first kind of manual says, here's a problem, solve it. You just have to follow these uh, directions. And there's an allure because it's, it's, it's predictable. It gives you a sense of security. Mammy and daddy are here. You know, we've worked out all of the parameters, you're safe. Um, but it doesn't give you a satisfied life. So I think that's quite interesting because that's what institutions kind of promise. They promise security, they promise predictability, they promise, you know, that's the trade-off between your freedom and predictability. Most people will sell out and trade their freedom in for predictability. So that's the trade-off of the institution. But right at the very edge, you take what you're doing and what others are doing. I think people say, actually, you know, forget predictability. It's much more fun to dance the dance, to start actually creating. So we move beyond problem solving and we get into creation. And that's where the action is. That's where the rubber meets the road, in my opinion. I think that's a really interesting point, Cormac. And my background in solution-focused coaching and uh, consulting very much plays into that. You don't get a, a great life by simply removing the problems. That's a sort of, that's how to get to base point but you get a great life by building the things that you want to do um, and so thinking about hopes and, and dreams and aspirations and what would make life better is tends to be a much more fruitful line of engagement we think uh, we think for that and and absolutely and you mentioned also this idea of dancing the dance I think that's a very powerful idea the idea of small steps and the idea of you know, do something see what happens do another thing you know, not everything will work 100%, but that's life. This kind of step-by-step -step emergent 
work um, actually can provide a very, very uh, satisfying way to, to go, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's lovely about Lego. I've often wondered if Lego w would, would, would benefit from thinking about designing and creating things that convene people into uh, hosting or co-creation of something. It'd be quite interesting to think about designing the process by which people come together and create together. Um, there's, a, there's a thought. Of, maybe we should send that off to Bill and see what they come back with. Um, <laughs> but in the meantime, I do think it's just that lovely idea that outside, you know, at the edge of empire, at the edge of the worthy outcome, the promised, you know, uh, predictable um, peace. There's just all of this disaggregated, disconnected stuff. You could call them assets. And our job is to, first of all, see them as having value, see them as having worth. And, and that's not an easy job because we're schooled very much to, first of all, not see that what surrounds us and what's within us is enough. So we're schooled in the scarcity mindset in that we don't have enough. We need uh, external things to come in to make us better, to make us sufficient. To, and, and, you know, it's alluring because all things are alluring uh, by virtue of the fact that they're partially true. It wouldn't be alluring if there wasn't some element of truth. But of course, we need things externally. So um, I like to go shopping the same as the, the next person, right? So th there's truth in that. But that's not the same as saying that that will give you a full and satisfied life. That's a whole other uh, kit and caboodle, as it were. But I like the idea of it's, first of all, it's about discovery. So kind of really seeing value in that which has become devalued or invisible. And then from there saying its value becomes amplified. Its value is intrinsic, you know. So um, the idea that every one of my neighbors has a gift means that they are intrinsically of value. So I know a neighbor, for example, not far from me, who's a beautiful solo singer. That's of tremendous value. And it makes me smile every day when I walk past his house and I hear him yodeling or whatever he, he is doing on any given day. But that value becomes amplified and multiplied like Lego when it's connected with other people who have a voice who, for example, form a choir, a physically distant choir these days. But nevertheless, you know, we will innovate our way around this and um, live with pandemics, as, as we've been doing historically, by the way, for a long, long time. Uh, we forget that we've actually lived with viruses for quite a long time. But in any case, that's another, that's probably another conversation. So I do think there is that piece, isn't there, around connecting. And then I think there's something around, uh, as well as discovering and connecting the assets, we've got to do something with them. You know, so I can bring uh, 10 solo singers together and they can all just stare at each other and go home and sing in the shower. <laughs> but, you know, it, it doesn't automatically mean they'll form a choir or even that they'll necessarily sing as a choir. So there's some magic in associational life. And this is where I think the art of hosting comes in. And it may be that that's done by um, a professional paid person. It may be that it's done by somebody in the community. But, you know, if you think about, um, you know, it's 3 a.m. in the morning and five jazz musicians come together for the first time and have never met each other. And they sit down and some, one of them says, who knows, oh, the moon. 
and they all lean forward because that's the message that they know. And someone taps to the rhythm and somebody else counts in a one, a two, a one, two, three, four. And even though they've never met each other because they have a shared culture, they jab. And the word for that, if, if, if we were to say, well, what's the word that describes that? The word in jazz culture is, these guys have swing. So that's what we're trying to find in community, the swing. So it's not orchestrated, it's a jam. And that's important to make that distinction. It's small, it's local, it's disaggregate. Doesn't mean it doesn't have structure. If you look at the jamming session, it's hard to see the structure because it's emergent, but it's there. There's culture, there's cues, there's the tapping of the rhythm, there's the knowing of the stories, just in the same way as Aboriginal cultures have storylines. We all have on-ramps to community. The modern world etherizes us, it puts us to sleep, and so we lose those. And a lot of what I think you're doing is trying to reawaken that imagination. Thank you, Cormac. Yes, that's very much what we're trying to do with Village in the City is inspire people to work in a small way locally. Um, and, and we're trying to, we're developing and tools and uh, handbook and support structures and forums where people can talk about these things and share ideas and encourage each other and so on. Um, because as you say, there's a, a in one sense, uh, Almost anyone can do this, I think, at a, at, a, at a sort of certain level, or many, many people can can do it. You don't have to have degrees in community building or anything to do these things. People have been doing them since time immemorial. And one of the things I think we I'd like to encourage people is to work small and uh, work small and often, if you like, do little things um, and connect one thing to another. Cormac, you make a lovely set of points in your book about the importance of the community, the things being done by the community. And this idea of the by space is, is something you're very keen to promote. And that's uh, kind of in counterpart to things being done with the community or things being done uh, for the community or even things being done to the community. I'm, I'm very keen on the by space too. Maybe we could just examine what helps people get into that into that buy space, because that's something I'd really like to do better. Yeah, well, I think it might just be helpful to explain the, the framework a wee bit, just so, so we all have um, a shared sense of it. A way of, a way of getting into this conversation is to get a sense of how do we show up in people's lives? I think most of us have an impulse to want to be helpful, and certainly we don't want to be harmful. So I imagine that as like, you know, we're standing at a crossroads, whether we're local neighbors uh, trying to be helpful in people's lives or whether we're paid or indeed, you know, it's, it's a vocational or it's a ministry based uh, endeavor to be alongside people, you know, in that, in that sense. And I suppose I think, you know, of the different ways that we can show up at this crossroads. So you could have the picture of the crossroads, it forms a cross, right? And there's different possibilities. I think of at least four ways that we could show up. A way of understanding this simply is to say, well, one way, it's not right or wrong, but it's a way, um, is to do things to people. Now, the danger there is people would say, it was done to me without me. So it's that real sense of, um, I was a custodian of that person 
rather than an architect with that person there as a supplementary resource to my architecture. So I really had a sense of this person had something in mind for me. And okay, they, they may have used great skill sets to get me to where they felt I needed to go, but it was they that determined the outcome, the result. You know, so by the way, coaching, which I have great love and affection for, can be a two. You know, if the coach is working on trying to get somebody to an outcome, right? Um, so just because you colonize with love in your heart doesn't make you any less colonial, <laughs> right? So in any case, so two, I mean, a lot of the old style education, the medical model was done to us, uh, without us, essentially. You know, uh, the fur, which is more kind of a charity based model, is what's done for us. But again, without us, we, we, it's done to it's done to us is more kind of uh, top down, a bit more kind of rough around the edges. Fur feels more loving. Um, and in some way, that's almost it messes with our heads a bit more than the two because it feels less brutal. So we should be appreciative. You know, it's it's for our own good. What are we complaining about? You know, aren't we lucky to get it? Uh, so there's that kind of sense of a charity model about it in the old style sense. Plenty of sympathy, but not a lot of empathy. Okay, I'm the sum of my problems, but thankfully there's a charitable soul coming to help me. The width is really interesting because it's being framed in Scotland and, and Poland and Canada and Australia. And I've tried to name all the different countries we have on the call uh, in lots of places as the high watermark of progress in terms of helping. So I think there are numerous trainings and programs and whatnot saying, look, if you want to support people, you've got to be with them. So we have different words for that co-production co-design, co-evaluation, and so forth and so on, co-creation and whatnot. And look, the bottom line is I'm saying, I don't think that's the high watermark. Um, I think we're two thirds of the way there. So, you know, I give uh, three out of four cheers for that. And what I want to say is that there is a fourth way. It's not better or worse than, but it can be very, very useful if you're interested in democracy and you're interested in agency, and you're interested in liberation, right? So you're interested in moving past relief action and hearing the voice of the poor or the voice of people who live in poverty as, uh, you know, as, 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 as a call to real social justice, which isn't about programs, it isn't about food banks, it's about something much more radical, right? So in that sense, how does that come about? Well, I think that comes about when people are supported to organize, when people are supported to build, when people are supported to uh, figure out what they have, and then from there figure out what else they need or want. Um, and for me, that has to start with people beginning to figure out what they want to do by their agency, by their citizenship, with other people that we would call neighbors, not salaried strangers, near neighbors. And this seems like a folksy point but I would say it's a really profoundly radical point. And when I use the word radical, because I'll use it a lot in this conversation, it shouldn't be confused with extremism. By radical, I mean getting to the root, the root of the matter. And that's what radical actually means, right? So in that sense, you know, if we want to get to the root of the democratic matter, well, the root to make a kind of a C, a C, a C, uh, 
sort of sea change point, I think, is to say, we have an inversion of democracy going on in most industrial countries where people genuinely believe the role of professionals is the key role, you know, and the role of the citizen, the family, the individual is defined as what happens after the important work of the professional is done. And what we're really saying is, is it's the other way around. The role of the professional should be defined as that which ha happens after the important work of citizening is done. Now, to the final point, what is the ideal scale within which the done by, the done with, the done for, and the done to can coexist, can be proportionate with each other? And the scale is the village scale hyper-local, or if we were talking with North American friends, we'd say the neighborhood scale, right? Both are relevant, but that's the threshold. That's the liminal space. And of course, underneath the liminal is the subliminal, but we'll talk about that later. Yes, indeed. That, that, so that we're very passionate about, I'm very passionate about the village size, which is more than a street, but it may well be less than a, a kind of local government area or something like that. It's not a kind of formal, formal thing. It certainly doesn't have to have these formal governance things. It's people getting together inclusively, I hope, and that's an item one on our manifesto is that this work should be inclusive to make things better for themselves. And there's a conversation going on, and maybe you've seen it in the chat already about, about the you know, people, some people wanting to tackle global issues, and I can quite, I get that the climate emergency, yeah, that 100%. The way we're coming at it at Village in the City is to, is to think, how can we get people in touch with each other so they can start something? And then maybe, that, maybe addressing the climate emergency is something they start to do. Fundamentally, this is about making people's lives better, very, very locally, very, very simply, very, very connectedly uh, in a place. For me, that's why I'm kind of coming into this space, and that's the sort of work that I'd... Uh, I'd like to do that. A quick reminder that you're listening to the Village in the City podcast with me, Mark McCurgo. If you want more information about Village in the City, you want to download our resources, you want to join our online community and talk about how you're building your own local village in the city, you can do that right now online at villageinthecity.net village in the city all one word dot net do come and join us there well the conversation moved on and we opened up the call to questions and the first question came from tom hi there mark hi there cormac thank you so much hey, for the discussion cormac we met once about 10 years ago in victoria train travel. station Great and had a very lovely conversation actually when we spoke uh, that was when the big society was the flavor of the month and Thinking back to the to that slightly strange time and listening to you talk, one of the things I was reflecting is about how um, the language we use as kind of community development workers gets taken up by politicians and people like that. And one of the things I've certainly seen in the past couple of years is lots and lots of people talking about strengths-based or asset-based they often miss out the community development and they'll just say kind of strengths-based working or something like that. And it strikes me that sometimes some of that work, maybe not as much as the big society did, but it feels like it's missing 
quite a lot of what's important about what you're saying and can be in danger of missing really a lot of why what you're saying works and is, is the right thing to do. H have you noticed a similar thing happening? And what, what, what's your reflection and reaction about that happening, if you do agree or if you don't? <laughs> well, I, totally, I, I totally agree. And I can, nearly, I can nearly pin it down to the year to date and the two people who started the nonsense. Uh, no, jokes aside, I, I do agree. Um, look, inevitably, you know, an imperial colonial agenda uh, you know, it, it kind of just trundles on, doesn't it? So this a very centrist context like the UK, for example, which is not alone. Um, well, it's you can you can take all kinds of structures down and you can create all kinds of narratives that conceal the basic premise. But the basic premise is that institutions sort out problems and people consume their services. And what we're saying is something much more radical. Now, inevitably, if you kind of say that and people want to feel progressive, well, there's a strategy for feeling progressive. This is what you do. You take an idea, you crop the radical root off, you appropriate the language so you can seem hip, and then you start, you know, trying to popularize that. Eventually, you believe your own nonsense. And, and I think that's an awful lot of what has happened. Acid-based approaches is a case in point. Social prescribing is another one. There, there's any amount of them. And it's, it's hurtful when I say this out loud, and I don't mean to be hurtful to people, because I think people actually genuinely believe what they're doing is radical. Um, and I think part of that is, is because so much damage, quite frankly, has been done to the important nature of community building and of working in a place-based way. So in a sense, and I see this particularly in centralized uh, countries, there are two kinds of levels of power. One is placeless power. Another way of thinking about that is rootless power. A lot of policymakers are just placeless. So they could, they could be on the left side of Mars with their policies. You know, there's, there is no there there. Um, and they don't even know that there's a no there there. I mean, they're loving things at the moment, you know, disembodied is how they fly. Um, the other is place-based and it's rooted. And, it, and, and by the way, this challenge is real, you know, just say I often joke um, with folks who are thinking about movement making and say, you know, when you finished occupying Wall Street, how about you come back and occupy your own street? You know, and there's something we're, we're all getting deeply reacquainted with the mundane at the moment. So being brought back by force to the local. Um, and it's quite interesting because I think that there has been a flight from the local, which is very much about fear of intimacy, actually, and fear of connection, you know. So in all kinds of ways, strength based and acid based are a way of continuing, it seems to me, to say what we're going to do is we're going to help on a case-by-case -case individual basis. But instead of seeing social change as being about looking at what's wrong with people, to use my term, we're going to start with what's strong, but it's going to be on an individual basis. Now, the interesting thing about that, Tom, is as long as you do that, you can take somebody and you can turn them into a need. You can continue. So an awful lot of the acid-based stuff is just another program, I would say. It's another way of making money effectively, of taking need and commodifying it. So the radical idea is that the community and association of associations uh, holds the authority and the power. And just to a final point, this is where the big society narrative was so flawed. 
because it tried to invite us into a conversation that was about big government, uh, small government, big community, small community, or it didn't even use the term community, it was society. Um, and actually the truth of the matter is, is that's a nonsense argument because if I'm a farmer and Monsanto, for example, you know, in Nebraska is coming in and is destroying my land, I need a big government that will introduce policies that will actually stop that predatory behavior. So right there, I need big government. Um, but if I'm trying to organize something like Mark and others on the call are trying to organize, what I need is, is I need as much space uh, to do that as possible. So it's about proportionality, not scale. It's not about big or small. And I think you could spend years, I think a decade, for example, um, talking in that narrative rather than actually getting on with doing the work in the community. Thanks, Cormac. Uh, Richard uh, in Poland, in Krakow, has your hand up. Hello, Richard. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you very much, Cormac. Um, greetings from Poland. Uh, Poles like, uh, feel like victims of imperialism, and so there's an identification there. I was and I bought your book while you were speaking, so it's now downloaded to my Kindle thanks to Amazon's platform. Um, so I, I want to comment on by, with, and for. Obviously, sound like what we're trying to do in village in the city, as opposed to two and the communists in Poland tried to impose their version of community on on Poland and other countries, and it didn't work. And I wanted to ask you about the role of how important it is to be voluntary when we think of um, resources that. You know, I've been involved in TED, the TED and TEDx movement, and that's very much about voluntary association. You're not allowed to make money, you're not allowed to be paid. And how important do you think it is for a movement like Village in the City to rely on voluntary local initiatives? And when on the one hand, you've got professional community builders, perhaps engaged with local government or community support officers. On the other hand, you've got people who are basically working out of the kindness of their own hearts and for free. And do you have any guidelines about how to that can be a tension if half the people yeah, are, yeah, are yeah. earning a salary yeah. and half the people in the room are working out of the kindness of their own hearts. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a real tension. Um, and I think what we can say is, is that there is no rule base or rule book that we can draw from. But here are some principles. And I think this will, this will have to be unpacked in every context. And um, there could be some very painful uh, conversations to be had depending on how we value people. So I think the first thing to say is, is that largely what we're trying to create is a culture of care, okay? And I think that culture of care, not just for human species, because we all, we all know now, I think that overemphasizing one species on the planet is uh, in no uh, species interest. Uh, but in any case, in trying to create a culture of care in a place, uh, for the place and for the people and with the people. I think it's really important that the motivators, if you like, are the, the things that sort of say, here's why you might want to contribute your gifts, shouldn't be extrinsic. They shouldn't be based on something that is not going to be sustainable. So, for example, you could take, take a, a grotesque version of this. I, I'm sitting at the table, hopefully, uh, a little after five, and I say to one of my kids, um, pass me the salt. And my child says, sure, but it'll cost you 50 cents. That's a grotesque version of family life. 
right? Now you might say, well, you know, I'm asking you to do it voluntarily. So what's the moral comp, you know, why should I, Papa? You know, <laughs> so I have to have an answer to that. I'm pretty clear on what the answer is. Now, to me, I don't think that's a terribly different conversation to a conversation that uh, I might have at community scale. Now, it's saying that one of my boys needs some help with their maths. Um, and so right now, he's getting some support from a teacher who I guess is earning extra money on her salary and comes to the house and there's physical distance and all of that kind of stuff. But essentially, we're paying her to help him with his maths. Um, and so there are these kinds of funny lines we have to negotiate. So, for example, there are some neighborhoods that we're working in where a community builder who's doing asset-based community development is paid. And you might say, in fact, we have one or two on the call. Sarah McPhee is on the call, who's a community builder from uh, in the Stratcarran area, Killen. Um, he said, well, why do you get paid? I said, well, one of the reasons that we get paid is, is because what we're trying to do is we're trying to support, we're not the ship's captain, but we are very skilled in shipbuilding. We know how to be alongside communities that may be fractured, that may have sent the stranger to the edge or even worse exiled people to congregated care settings right in the middle of a pandemic and so on. So communities are not sort of idyllic, fluffy, woolly, lovely places. There could be lots of complexity in communities. And so if I was to say, well, let's just volunteer ourselves out of all of the issues that we have and let's cross our fingers on the homeless issues and, you know, um, the domestic violence and stuff like that. I'm not sure how credible a voice I would be in the space and I'm not sure how well I'd sleep at night because my experience suggests to me that just because we don't value it, that there isn't an important set of craft and skill that is brought to the art of convening and hosting and working through and resolving some real traumas and some real complexities in bringing people into community life. And of course, we know community is a verb, not a noun. So we're inviting people to do community, to live into community, okay? Um, and so there's that function. Some communities are able to do it without a community organizer, without a community builder, or they're able to upcycle a role. So I know in a, a neighbor, a, a parish in, um, in Birmingham, for example, Al Barrett, who's a vicar uh, in, in Furs and Bromford, you know, essentially he, he's, he's got his, you know, he's got his resource, if you will. So his salary, it's not the right word, but his salary is covered. But what he's doing is he's upcycling and he's imagining, he's morally imagining with his neighbors, his role into being a community animator. You know, in other places, um, the hospice, like Sarah, Sarah uh, is somebody who works in the hospice, you know, but she's being supported to work at a village level because they feel that death belongs to community, not to a house on a hill, you see? So this is very complex, but that's part of the fun of this. Now, what worries me is when somebody rather simplistically in my mind says, well, if you're asking volunteers to do something that other people get paid for, you're devaluing the volunteer. The implication of this is, is that the only way to value people is to pay them. And I would say what I do, what I particularly in March and April, when we were actually, for example, supporting some of our neighbors to die at home, um, there's no amount of money would pay me to do what I did. 
it's a different space. However, having the support of hospice people who knew what they were doing and were able to cheer us on and give us some tips, I have no issue with them being paid. So it's, it's kind of unpacking that. One last thought, Richard, and this might excite you, <laughs> I think. Um, I don't even know if I'm technically allowed to say this, so maybe I shouldn't name the place. But in the UK, as of in the last few weeks, I have information at my disposal that tells me that a parish council, uh, which is the, the closest tier of local government in the UK to the people, if you like, um, they aren't always, you know, uh, like every group, including families, they've got baggage, right? But in any case, they have used their precept, which is a way of saying they've used some of their purse to employ a community builder because they've seen the value of having a community builder when you're working at a threshold or a scale of about 3,000 to 5,000 people, particularly around Mark's point, which is inclusion. So there's some thoughts if you like, I, I, I can't give you clear answers, unfortunately. No, that's very helpful. Thank you. Thank you very much, Cormac. Thank you, Richard. Uh, so Steve has a question. Steve? Yes, I think he did. He was actually just scratching his head. It's not actually a question. It's a statement about volunteering. Okay. Um, I, I run a number of very loosely connected organisations uh, and we employ quite a lot of volunteers, but we have a, a kind of a, a two-way street. Um, what, what starts out as somebody coming in completely naive, and it's a virtual community because we work right across the country, um, providing um, conversations for people um, who are struggling in, in the current conditions. Um, and people have come in and volunteered. And what we did, um, first of all, we started, we started by just training them up in solution-focused practice, which Mark will tell you more, more about if you want to know. Um, probably go on about it forever. Um, and we put all that training in place for them. Um, then once they began to become a little bit more proficient in the way we wanted them to work, they then got mentored and they went on the telephone lines. And as they became more proficient and more independent, we began to pay them. But the other thing that we did was we facilitated any other projects that they wanted to do. If they came up with an idea in their own community, then we would provide the support that we could. And, and it's a bit limited. I mean, we're struggling for funds all the time, but we would then support them because they had the idea, but it was always about their ambitions and not our ambitions for them. Uh, and sometimes they go off and they do other things. And sometimes people take the training and go off um, and, and we don't see them again, but we consider that training just to be an investment in wherever they go. And, and that's now gone nationwide. We've got people all over the country working virtually, working in their own communities, just simply because we wanted to put this together. And it started out as a free service, but we've got a little bit of money. So where we can, we pay people. And that encourages them to do more and to become more independent and, and involving other people. So it becomes, as Christakis would say, it becomes a virtuous network. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, virtuous networks are a good thing. Good thing. Um, so we just have time maybe for one more um, before we go to our breakout rooms. Uh, if somebody has a question, give me a wave. Oh, Randy is waving, uh, I think. And Perry in Berlin was waving too. Oh, and Perry, right. Okay, let's, let's try and get the two of them in. Randy, go for it. Well, I have a question about um, 
empowering and doing things for. And uh, I, I live in a neighborhood that's kind of organized, but not organized very well. Uh, and, you know, we can do some things for ourselves, but we also have a city administration that does things. Uh, and I might put it as, you know, do you police things through vigilante uh, operations or do you bring in the police force? And uh, I have a granddaughter that's uh, living in the autonomous zone in Minneapolis, uh, uh, which surrounds where the uh, George Floyd was, uh, uh, life was taken by a police officer and the police department won't go in. So I'm, I'm just curious about yeah, how do those two question. go together? Well, a couple of things, Randy, really quickly. Um, one is Nebraska, in my mind, is a, is, is a place of great innovation in, in terms of what we're talking about. And I would, yeah, I would look to the Nebraska Community Foundation as an example of precipitation as against the provision of a service. So what they're doing is, is they're using um, money in a really creative way to precipitate, particularly um, small town living. You know, Nebraska is interesting in the sense of across the arc of 50 years, it is possible that your biggest export could be your young people. So, you know, there's something, and this is true in many areas, there's something about recognizing that and saying, well, how do we actually create towns and create neighborhoods where young people will want to stay? And, you know, that's about economics as well as, uh, you know, a nice place to live. So there's just a thought on that. It's worth, I would commend the Nebraska Community Foundation to your attention if you're not already familiar with it, um, you will get great rewards. Yeah, I know, I know Jeff Yeo's pretty well. You know Jeff, great. The other thing I wanted to speak to was, um, because you've raised it, is um, some learnings which are ongoing and unfolding around the tragic death of George Floyd, and I suppose to the point around police killings. And to an extent, the narrative that's kind of emerging um, through the stewardship and the good efforts, um, the well-intended efforts of Black Lives Matters and other activists. And I think this is really interesting. And it's to, in no way to criticize anybody, but just to make an observation that the defund police narrative that's going on in the US at the moment is really, really interesting. Because if you look at it very closely, I think what we'll see happen in a lot of progressive cities is some monies will be taken from police enforcement. But where will it go? The likelihood is it will actually go to another institution, most likely mental health institutions. So instead of, and I don't mean to be glib here, but instead of you know incarcerating or shooting people, we incarcerate and shoot them with something else. You know, at, at the psychiatric services in many respects are great, but in some respects they're just downright awful. Um, you know, when measured against quality of life and liberty, there's some real issues and some real reform. Uh, is required. Now, let's just say for a moment, enforcement is necessary and psychiatric services are sometimes necessary. What we're saying is let's not pick a fight with the police or with psychiatric services. We're not going to win anyway. But if we're saying defund the police, what are we saying the alternative is? Is the alternative another institution and that's it, full stop? Well, I think what we're saying is there is another alternative. It's called the community alternative. Now, what does that look like? What's the community alternative to incarceration? So we're not just village, you know, building the village or building the neighborhood so we can all hold hands and sing Kambaya into the sunset post-COVID. 
So what are we doing? And I think what we're actually doing is, is we're trying to build a movement towards social justice as well as you know, trying to obviously build something that does create mutual aid and does create a sense of care. And by the way, you know, the piece around volunteerism and voluntary, uh, you know, offerings and so forth, I think that's fine. But there's something really rich about considering what care is. Because care is the freely given gift of the heart, one person to another. You can't buy it, you can't sell it, you can't manage it, and you can't curricularize it. And that's the nature of humans. Now, how do we do that best? By building community. And that's not the same as building an institution. And what we've done, Randy, is, is we've outsourced an awful lot of the functions, including safety, to institutions so they can do it to us. And we no longer believe we can do some of that stuff by itself. And it gets really interesting because quite quickly it gets pathologized when we say let's do stuff together so immediately you get teased you say oh what you're going to be a vigilante group you see you can nearly hear the tone you say no actually 85 percent of what creates safety in the neighborhood is created by people getting to know each other by first name and doing things together that has nothing to do with policing or safety. It's just about fun or connection. But that also creates well-being dividends. It creates mental health dividends and so on. So it's about really pulling back the language and not being teased off the field of play. What I'm hearing you say just very quickly is a neighborhood watch uh, where people look out for one another. Uh, is a good supplement to police. We, we don't need to have a police car drive down our street every hour to make sure everything's all right. We look out for each other. But when we, when we have serious needs is when we call the police in. Right. So the police are a supplement to the neighborhood, not the other way around. Okay. So the neighborhood watch, hopefully it's not the valley of the squinting windows that we're actually doing stuff and, and falling in love with each other, not just watching each other. But, um, you know, that a watched neighborhood and a cared for neighborhood tends to be a safer place. But there are times when crime happens and some crimes require police attendance. Look, here's, here's, here's an axiom that I think you could take to the bank. When you focus on crime, you end up with police as the key actors. When you focus on safety, you end up with community as the key actors. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Perry, is it a quick one? Uh, quick. Cormac, when you've seen people start with a scarcity mentality and shift to an abundance mindset, what has made the difference? It's a great question. I remember once being in Doncaster and uh, it, we were at a day which was essentially about recovery. So the framing was, you know, recovery uh, from substance misuse, I suppose. Um, I always like to reframe that as discovery rather than recovery. But in any case, it was that's how it was framed. And near the end of the day, somebody stood up and they said, um, I've been clean for nine months and everybody clapped. And I didn't, which caused alarm because I was at the front of the room. And I suppose I was supposed to be modeling these things. And I said, well, let's just start with understanding one thing very clearly first. You were never dirty. So that's the shift into the abundance mindset. So I think the key piece, the key turn is when I believe I am enough, when I believe I have a gift to contribute, 
And then I think the next piece is when I believe I live in a place where others are prepared to receive that gift. Now, if you think about this culturally, by the way, this is not a radically new thought. So in um, Western Africa, the word genius comes from genii, which is, is this idea that we send our adolescent children off to, uh, through rites of passage, which I think is a good way of understanding what we've been through over the last 10 months. It's like a rite of passage in that there are three stages. There's separation, there's trial, and there's return. That's what a rite of passage is. And I think an awful lot of coaching when it's done well or, you know, uh, hosting is a rite of passage in a sense. But so too has been an awful lot of the transition away from scarcity into abundance. What's a rite of passage? You go to discover you have something worth contributing, not just to your own self-interest or the marketplace, but to the well-being of your community. Ubuntu, I am I because we are we. And that's the piece. Once I get that I have a gift to give and that gift is received, all is well. So it's that piece around, Perry, you are enough. You have a gift. We need it. We can't be whole without it. Where have you been all our lives? And at that moment, we lift off the label that obscures the gift. And at that moment, we say, you cannot be defined out of our community into an institution because we can't do without you. And that's the radical act of liberation. Cormac, just a, a few words in closing, please. Well, just a few thoughts. And there's lots of people on the call I recognize, you know, so there's lots of great stuff happening in the UK around neighborhood movements. This idea that the neighborhood or the village is the scale of change, not the individual or the institution. Is that the same as saying institutions are bad or individuals are bad? No. Um, I think it's a great way if you want to resist this idea, it's a great way of kind of taking your you know, ball and leaving the playground, but it's not actually based on anything other than irritation. Now, a more, I think, kindly way of interpreting what we're saying is to say it's not about either or, it's not about institutions or community. It's about right relationship. When I work in Canada, and we have some folks, I think, from Canada with elders, Indigenous elders will greet me with the expression, all my relations, past, present, future, to the land, to the people, uh, to what is to come. It's a pretty big expression, you know, as opposed to hello. <laughs> so uh, I think what they're reminding us is, is that we have to be in right relationship. And um, that's a huge invitation. So institutions, I think, by their very nature, are um, a huge resource. Professionalism, expertise has got a lot to offer. And it's about trying to make sure that it's proportionate. So one of the ways that I'd like to just finish today is to say, I think about it like a three lane highway. You know, I call it the golden highway, all right? Where there's this whole set of things. And I think about this in relation to C-19 as well, COVID-19. There's a whole set of things actually that locally we can do. I was on to some folks this morning in Bristol in the community of Knoll where there was a massive spike uh, of COVID-19 the last few weeks. It was local communities sitting together, physically distant, albeit, who, who talked this issue through. That's what brought the numbers down. History will actually, I think, recognize that one of the things that will enable us best to deal with C-19 is physical distancing. It's, it's organizing and participating ourselves at community level to live with this virus until it's safe to, to you know, create an alternative future. Now that means that there's a whole, there's a whole lane where communities near neighbors can do some really radical and important things. 
on their own without help. It's not even co-produced. There's a second lane where there's a whole set of things that actually we need outside help to do. Um, there are anarchists on the call, and I salute you. I give you two cheers out of three. Um, if you can live your life without external actors supporting you, that's great. I'm not sure you're paying a lot of attention, but, you know, be that as it may, you know, I'm not here to argue with you, but it's certainly not what I'm advancing. I do think that there are a whole set of supplementary functions which are useful. Where I contest the space is if agencies or outside actors are coming in to take functions that belong to my family or community or solve problems that don't belong to them, then I have an issue. And I think that's anti-democratic. The third lane is where there's a whole set of things that as, as neighbors, as community people, we need done for us. I don't think there's anybody in my neighborhood looking to take charge of the sewerage system. I know there's some rural communities that have done that, but in my neighborhood, they're happy to let local government look after that. You know, so, you know, there are all kinds of trade-offs in this social contract. But the question that we're trying to concern ourselves with here is how can we make sure that community and citizenship and the gifts of local people doesn't get eclipsed by the institutional world and that we can get the best from our institutions. So that's a thought uh, as we come to the end, Mark. And I'm sorry, I'm going to have to die off folks i apologize but i have i have to go on to another uh, call with some local community folks somewhere else so thank you very much for having me and uh, whatever the festivities of the holiday season bring you or don't just i hope you're well and i hope you stay in trouble cause lots of mischief we need that <laughs> thank, thank you very, very much indeed Cormac. thanks for joining us it's great to have you on and great to meet you so thank you very much take care, take care guys